6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 46 through 49. Verse 3, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Well, notice all the way through here, Isaiah keeps putting them antiphonally. Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel. Jacob, the carnal side, Israel, the spiritual side. Jacob, the conniver, but nevertheless justified. And Israel, the chosen of God. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from their birth, who are carried from the womb. Now, it could be speaking of the tribes of Israel from their birth, or also the idiom is often used speaking of the nation as if it had been born in Egypt. And God will speak of Israel as his firstborn, speaking of the nation, often. Verse 4, And even to your old age, I am he, and even to the gray hairs will I carry you. I, I like that, the gray hairs. I imagine we've given him a lot of gray hairs. <laughs> I have made and I will bear, and, I, and even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that, that we may be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith. And he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. In other words, it's an idol fabrication implication here. In contrast, in other words, God, to whom will we make me equal who compare me and that we may be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag, weigh silver out of the balance, and hire a goldsmith. And he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear it upon the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place. And it standeth from its place shall it not move. Yea, one shall cry unto it, yet can it not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Strange, strange concept of an idol. Has no capability. Man-made, man-born, and yet man looks to it to get him out of trouble. Strange. And yet not as strange as we are today. I continually am fascinated when we stand back and we read about the ancient cultures and they fabricate these strange things to worship. And yet today we've invented an even more insulting God to worship than an idol. Because an idol is at least something. It's a focus of attention, if nothing else. Modern man has invented an even more insulting idol to worship. Nothingness. Randomness. Chance. The universe happened by chance. Random events. Nothingness. Entropy, we would call it. Chaos. Confusion. All those are synonyms for, from, a, from a mathematical point of view. Life just started. Boy, every time you begin to examine the human body, or especially examine the beginning of new life, it's a miracle. And to ascribe, well, it just happened. 
you know, some cosmic soup, a lightning's bolt. Uh, how insulting to the God who created the intricate, skillful design. So as we smile and look at these ancient cultures and their idols, let's recognize we've gone even further than they have in being insulting to the creator of the universe. Verse 8, remember this and show yourselves, men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things which are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. <laughs> I always hear Yul Brenner saying that. So let it be written, so let it be done, you know, kind of thing. I shall do all my pleasure. Declaring the end from the beginning, how interesting it is this, as God asserts himself, as God expresses who he is, that he authenticates those assertions by pointing out that he is addressing us from outside time altogether. And at the risk of being repetitive, let me just remind you, or for those that might be new, to recognize some of the fallacies we intrinsically make when we talk about things like eternity. We all tend to assume that the eternal one is simply one who has lots of time. He started from eternity past and he continues to eternity future. And we get these ideas because we extend our experience from school. We used to have to go to the blackboard and write a timeline from the left to the right. Some point to the left would be a beginning. Some point to the right would be we, we made timelines. And how many of you made timelines in school? Yeah, okay, you're with me. Well, see, from that experience then, we, we jump to the conclusion that time is linear and absolute. Well, when we start talking about eternity or God, we say, oh, no problem. That's a line that starts at infinity over there on the left and goes to infinity over on the right, right? From everlasting to everlasting. Okay, not a bad approximation, except it's got a problem. It causes us to visualize God as someone who has lots of time. When the reality is, we now know from modern physics, that time is the result of the constraints of mass and gravity. If you have done your homework or you're, you're trained or, or have the background to understand the modern physics, general theory of Einstein's, not special, but general theory of relativity, you know that time is a physical property. Time dilates. It slows down relative to another reference system, but through acceleration or through extended gravity and so forth. And uh, the classical uh, riddles that are you, you get in a physics class about the two astronauts born at the same time. One goes on a space mission, one stays home. If the space mission involves traveling near the, you know, at some significant fraction of the speed of light, the traveler comes back younger than his brother. And you say, wait, well, that's just a way of starting to recognize what, what the mathematicians call the dilation of time. There's something else that's kind of fun to do. I'm indebted to Dr. Gerald Schroeder, who wrote Genesis and the Big Bang. You'll find abandoned books in the stores. You won't find a Christian bookstore because he's Jewish. He's not a Christian, but he's an interesting writer. Witnessed six nuclear blasts and so forth. He lives in Jerusalem. We became great friends. He um, mentioned to me recently, he took the mass of the earth and put himself on the earth and took the mass of the earth. That's one point. He took the universe, as we now have measured it, in its size and mass, put himself on the perimeter of that, and plugged those in the Einstein's theory of relativity, the general theory. turns out when you run that arithmetic, it turns out that the 13 billion year universe equates to six days. Isn't that kind of fun on the earth? I thought that was kind of interesting. 
What a coincidence. See, God is outside time altogether. It's not, he's not someone who has lots of time. He's not limited to mass or acceleration, which means it's not just somebody who has lots of time. He looks at us in the time domain from outside the time domain on the other side of a transform. Mathematicians speak of transforms as a way of transforming one space into another. We speak of space-time that we're in, and we use the, the uh, Fourier transforms to go into the time-frequency domain. You do that in hi-fi, and if you're an audio engineer, you do all that at the time. There's Fourier transforms. There's Laplace transforms. There's the Lorentz transforms. There's all kinds of transforms. Well, that, that, that Lorentz transforms translates one time preference to another. But see, God's outside time altogether. And that's how he proves who he is. Because he is able to see things before they happen. He's outside time. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. When was this Bible written? Thousands of years ago. And yet lays out every detail that's happening. The Old Testament, the Tanakh, translated three centuries before Christ, before Christ was born, lays out the Messiah, what he's going to do. Lays out his family tree, where he's going to be born. Describes his whole history. The fact he'd be betrayed by a friend. For 30 pieces of silver, the transaction will occur in the temple. Yet the money will end up with a potter. All, all incredible details. Centuries before the fact. And of course the dramatic fulfillment is the person of Jesus Christ. But it goes on. It talks about history of the world. The nations that arise and fall before it happens. Lays all out. Daniel 2 and 7 has laid out thousands of years of history to this very day. And we look at it carefully. He predicts the very day that Israel reestablishes re a state. May 14th of 1948. Mentions the very day that Israel will regrain biblical Jerusalem on June 7th of 1967. It happened on to the day. And it goes on. It says the city of Babylon, which we think is destroyed, is going to be rebuilt. And Saddam Hussein is rebuilding it. Interesting. Describes Magog, the Russians, from the Scythians. From Magog, the Scythians, the Russians. Arming a group of nations, not an Arab among them, but a lot of Muslims, <laughs> to go attack Israel. And God's going to intervene there. Hey, that's getting ready to happen. It's on the threshold. Day to day, I get reports of possibilities. The Bible says that Europe's going to emerge as the, not only reemerge, I should say, as a world power and become a global government. Hey, we're watching it happen, trying to make it happen. Our administration is pushing for it, naively. Interesting. It's all happening. The Bible says the temple's going to be rebuilt, be destroyed in 70 AD. Daniel describes that in chapter 9. Jesus in Matthew 24 and Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 and John in Revelation 11 describe the temple being rebuilt and they've started. Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is none else. I am God. Verse 9. And there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. There's going to be an end. There's going to be a time of trouble like the world's never seen. There's going to be the day of Jehovah. It's on the threshold. From ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, a man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stubborn in heart. That's speaking to me there. That are far from righteousness. Well, not if I have Christ's righteousness. Verse 13, I bring near... My righteousness, praise God. See, I'm not interested in God's justice. I'm interested in his mercy. I'm excited about the fact that he will look to me and impute his righteousness to me. See, hearken to me, you stubborn heart that are far from righteousness. That's me. 
I bring near my righteousness, God says. Boy, am I grateful for that. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. I will place my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Chapter 47. Chapter 46 is about idols. Chapter 47 is about a specific related topic, a different topic, and yet maybe closely related. And it's Babylon. And as we read chapter 47, I want you to notice two things. On the one hand, you'll notice the language goes far beyond Babylon as we normally would view it from Isaiah's chair, so to speak. Because from Isaiah's point of view, Babylon will rise to power and be judged. We've talked a lot about that. So the subject comes up again. But I want you to notice two things. On the one hand, it's more than just Babylon as envisioned locally. And yet, it is also the pride of the Chaldeans. We're not talking Rome here. We're not talking other allegories. We're talking, well, let's see what we're talking about. Chapter 47, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans. Interesting phrase. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover thy locks. Make bare the leg. Uncover the thigh. Pass over the rivers. Isaiah is graphic, isn't it? Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. The idioms here would sound strange if we didn't have the benefit of Revelation 17, 18, where we seek Babylon characterized as the harlot. You see? It goes on, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called the lady of kingdoms. Not kingdom singular, plural. Hmm, interesting. I was angry with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. And thou saidst, I shall be a lady forever. So that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end of it. Therefore hear now this, thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest securely, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me, I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. Boy, that's interesting. Let me come back to that. Before let's see, I want to let's get the flow of the chapter, but then let's come back to some of the insights we have here from chapter forty-seven. But these two things, verse nine, shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for thy great abundance of thine enchantments. If you're going to do your homework on Babylon, you obviously want to read Revelation seventeen and eighteen, where mystery Babylon is featured. It's one of the climactic events of the book of Revelation, about which much has been said and most of it's been wrong. There are books and charts and pamphlets you can get from TV preachers and stuff, and most of it is wrong. Do your own homework on what Mystery Babylon is all about. It's not a simple subject. And those of you taking notes, let me just refresh your memory on a little assignment. Three pairs of chapters, you should read at one sitting. Do it at one time, take less than an hour, to get the flow of the language in the text. The six chapters, three pairs. Isaiah 13 and 14, 
Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Revelation 17 and 18 and add Isaiah 47 to the list. Very key issue. What the dilemma includes is that we're talking literal Babylon. The pride of the Chaldeans on the Euphrates. It's reemerging, 62 miles south of Baghdad. It's there. Watch the news over the coming time span, if the Lord allows. Because it will reemerge as a major world event over time. Because the 70th week of Daniel, also called in the Old Testament the day of the Lord, the day of Jehovah, a seven-year period that is detailed for us in many places, but none more eloquently than in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. 6 through 19. And when you get to 17 and 18, just before the end of that interval, one of the big events is the judgment of this world center called Mystery Babylon. So you want to understand what it's all about. But here we see her characterized as a harlot, as it is in Revelation. But she makes a strange boast here. I want you to turn with me to Revelation 18. And again, we won't get, uh, I'll try to not get sucked into a whole deviant study here on Revelation. You can do that by getting the tapes. Chapter 17 and 18, of course, are in Mystery Babylon, but, but in chapter 18 it goes on. And um, verse 4, John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. Echoing, if you will, the letter to Thyatira to some extent from chapters 2 and 3, the last seven letters, seven churches. And that she receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double, according to her works, in the cup in which she hath filled to her double. How much hath she glorified herself and lived luxuriously? So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow. And shall see no sorrow. That's obviously her boast. It's obviously wrong as, as, as is corrected, if you will, both in Revelation and also Isaiah. But I'm struck with her boast that whatever Mystery Babylon is, she's bragging that she's not a widow. It's interesting that in verse 8 of Isaiah 47, she says, I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. What is Mystery Babylon? For many, many, many centuries, Protestant commentators have had a field day because they have validly tracked the migration of the Babylonian religious system, which started in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, becomes a whole the source of all false worship, migrates to Pergamos and then ultimately to pagan Rome and was the religious system of the world at the time that Constantine pulls his particular political maneuver. And of course, much of the vestiges of the Babylonian system, of course, still occur today in our society and also, among other places, in certain <laughs> major religious groups. But see, Mystery Babylon is far more than that. Mystery Babylon appears to be an amalgam of a lot of things. The New Age is certainly setting the stage. 
I believe that Mystery Babylon will include, not be limited to, but will include the apostate Christian church, an ecumenical movement of all the denominations. It will consist of all the churches who do not need new pastors after the rapture. And it's interesting that Mystery Babylon boasts here, I do not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. Could she be bragging that she didn't lose any in an event that occurred prior to her saying that? Does that suggest the possibility that Mystery Babylon here pictured and in Revelation 17, 18 is a post-rapture brag? Think about it. When you study the book of Revelation, you'll encounter the concept of what some scholars call the Satanic Trinity. Satan trying to achieve his ambition of being like the Father, like the Most High. That the first beast of Revelation 13 is his Messiah, if you will, his leader. And we have the second beast, the false prophet. And some many scholars have drawn the analogy of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with Satan and those two characters, right? Well, is there a third participant? The analogy of the Bride of Christ and the analogy of the Harlot of Babylon. If that's valid, that's just a big if. You have to decide for yourself. If that's the case, then I wonder what clue is here for us where she brags that I do not sit as a widow, uh, neither shall I know the loss of children. Strange, strange remark for her to make. But we'll move on. (laughs) Verse 10, For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness, thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee, thou shalt not know from where it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee, thou shalt not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Stand now with thine enchantments, and with the multitude of thy sorceries, in which thou hast labored from thy youth. If so be, thou shalt be able to profit, If so, be thou mayest prevail. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Behold, they shall be like the stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. Thus shall they be unto thee with whom thou hast labored, even thy merchants from thy youth. They shall wander every one to his quarter. None shall save thee. And the parallelism of this passage with Revelation 18 is dramatic. And I'll just leave you to search that out for yourself. There's three groups of people that stand back and wail her torment. Three groups of people in Revelation 18. It all comes in one hour and she's destroyed. And three groups bemoan it. Kings, merchants, and ship captains that trade by sea. This empire is built on world trade. Interesting. She rides, the harlot, she rides the beast. Is Babylon the beast? No, no, it rides the beast. And before the beast is through, it consumes her. It turns on her. It's all in Revelation. You can sort that out. Okay, Isaiah 48, hear ye this, O house of Jacob, 
who are called by the name of Israel. Uh Uh-oh. Already, you can tell, (laughs) he's going to get rough. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. See, again, we got Jacob and Israel used tantiphonally. But in this case, the claim of Israel is sort of... (laughs) In dispute here, isn't it? And are come forth out of the waters of Judah who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. Uh oh. For they call themselves of the holy city and they stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning and they went forth out of my mouth. I showed them. I did them suddenly and they came to pass because I knew that thou art obstinate and thy neck is an iron sinew and thy brow bronze. Wow. I wonder if the Jewish Defamation League has seen this passage here. A little anti-Semitic, isn't it? All kidding aside, it's interesting to see how candid and descriptive the Scripture is. I'm fascinated with Genesis 18 when when Abraham encounters the Lord and the Lord shares with him he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham do? Shows his characteristic camel trading tendencies. Well, wait a minute, Lord. (laughs) What if there's 50 righteous there? Well, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. Well, what if there's only 45? Would you believe 40? 30. He gets down to 10 and backs off. But point is, that's the first mention in the scripture of chutzpah. But it's also interesting how God speaks. Moses speaks of the people, his own people. Hey, Lord, you gave them to me. I didn't ask for this job. You know. And it's, it's, it's fun to read through the Torah and, how, and Moses' frustration. Can you imagine trying to rule that people? I read the daily paper. And, and can you imagine running for office in Israel? Can you imagine trying to preside over that unruly group of people? As they say over there, you know, two Jews, three opinions. I mean, it's just, you know. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.